You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 92, Fear and Expectation. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers. Out of all the tens of thousands of people who listen to this show, it's only a few thousand who actually keep this thing afloat with their generosity. Thank you. If you'd like to help, visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon, and you can get this and all future episodes ad-free. Anyway. We last left the narrative in mid-1806. Napoleon's stunning victory at Austerlitz had brought him to new heights of power. The Holy Roman Empire, which had stood for a thousand years, was gone. Napoleon had forced the Habsburgs into a corner, and they'd had no choice but to dissolve their empire. The fall of the Great Empire had left a power vacuum, which allowed France to assert its influence over huge swaths of former imperial territory in Germany. Many of the small German states joined Napoleon's new Confederation of the Rhine, which was intended to be a modern, pro-French replacement for the empire. Others aligned themselves with France informally through bilateral alliances. Napoleon now ruled over most of Western Europe, either directly by annexing new territory to France, or indirectly, through puppet governments or unequal alliances with weak powers, who became junior partners to France. Napoleon's influence now stretched from western Iberia to central Germany, and from the German ports on the Baltic to southern Italy. Tens of millions of people, from dozens of different nationalities, now found themselves under direct French rule or indirect French domination. Napoleon was the most powerful European ruler in centuries. In this episode, we'll see how Bonaparte attempted to organize this new empire and examine the consequences of this reorganization. All of the French army's dazzling success of the preceding year had come at a tremendous cost. We've already discussed the human cost in great detail in past episodes, but there was a monetary cost as well. The war had pushed France's financial system to the breaking point. As the Grande Armée pushed into Germany and Austria, the French economy began to crumble. The sudden frenzy of war spending led to inflation. Speculators traded army contracts like stocks, 
which created a financial bubble. That bubble burst in the winter of 1805. While Napoleon was leading his men to glory at Austerlitz, the home front was entering a crisis, with leading banks and financiers in immediate danger of insolvency. While he was directing his armies in the field, Napoleon tried to manage this financial panic by letter. That's always something to keep in mind about Napoleon's generalship after 1799. He was a part-timer, dividing his attention between his duties as head of state and his duties as a military commander. It's remarkable what he was able to achieve with his attention divided. But you might also wonder how things might have turned out if he had delegated more. The 1805 campaign was the first time Napoleon had been away from Paris for any significant length of time since his seizure of power in 1799. Even when he'd gone on campaign in Italy in 1800 to beat the Austrians at Marengo, he had made sure to spend as little time as possible away from the capital. He left Paris on May 6th and returned on July 2nd, just under two months barely enough time to win a major battle and find a new Italian mistress. He had chosen to limit his time in Italy for political reasons. In 1800, his regime was less than a year old, and he had worried about what the scheming, backstabbing politicians and generals back in Paris might do in his absence. Five years later, as the Third Coalition was forming and war was on the horizon once again, Napoleon felt secure enough in his position to plan for an extended absence from the capital. While the emperor led France's armies against the Austrians and Russians, political authority in Paris would pass to his longtime political partner and even longer-time older brother, Joseph Bonaparte. People sometimes mock Napoleon's habit of promoting his family members, but let's not forget that Joseph Bonaparte was a distinguished diplomat with a political career of his own, a career that had started before his brother's rise to power. And for this sensitive task, Napoleon needed someone whose loyalty was absolute, someone he could be sure would not take advantage of the emperor's absence to seize power for himself. In the cutthroat world of post-revolutionary French politics, Bonaparte felt he couldn't truly trust anyone who wasn't family. Unfortunately for basically everyone, Joseph was not a capable ruler. He was an intelligent and talented person with plenty of relevant experience and education, but unlike his brother, Joseph did not thrive in the spotlight. By nature, he was a backroom operator who was happiest working in the background towards someone else's agenda. When all eyes were on Joseph, with the entire government waiting to follow his lead, he seemed not to know what to do. The whole French system was built around Napoleon's relentless attention to detail and forceful personality. Joseph did not have these traits. With a void at the head of the government, ambitious politicians were able to increase their power. One of these was police minister Joseph Fouché, a powerful, sinister figure who had been a major force in successive French governments. Like his predecessors, Napoleon didn't trust Fouché, but found him too valuable and too dangerous to dismiss. 
The emperor knew Fouché would seize any opportunity to increase his personal power, and specifically warned his brother to be wary of the police minister and not to give him an inch. But Joseph either ignored this advice or was not strong enough to follow it. Fouché found it very easy to manipulate the elder Bonaparte. There was also a somewhat less malevolent figure stepping into the void, Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès. We introduced Cambacérès back in episode 54. He was a liberal lawyer and a legal theorist turned politician, who had been chosen to serve as second consul under Napoleon's new regime, after the coup of Brumaire. Under the Empire, he had gotten a somewhat grandiose new title, Arch-Chancellor of the Empire. Effectively, he was Napoleon's chief legal advisor, equivalent to the attorney general in the American or British systems. Cambacérès did not fit the stereotype of a great statesman. He led a sumptuous lifestyle, devoted to parties, drinking, casual sex, and gambling. Despite over a decade in politics, he had never cultivated a public profile, preferring to work behind the scenes. This was probably in part because of his pronounced stutter. He was also gay, and surprisingly open about it. Almost anyone who was anyone in Paris was aware of his orientation. Part of the reason he was chosen as second consul was because there was little chance of someone like him ever challenging Napoleon's power. However, Bonaparte came to find him very useful. Cambacérès had been one of the main authors of the Napoleonic Code probably the second biggest influence on the document after Napoleon himself. Napoleon often relied on his advice in the Council of State. So perhaps it's no surprise that with his brother seemingly incapable of keeping a handle on things in his absence, Napoleon found himself increasingly corresponding with Cambacérès as he tried to run the government from his campaign tent. In many ways, this was a good arrangement. Underneath that soft exterior, Cambacérès was an intelligent person and diligent public servant, who understood how Napoleon thought and was capable of navigating the halls of power in a way Joseph was clearly not. Napoleon will continue to rely on Cambacérès in this capacity as our story continues. The first test of this relationship would be the looming financial crisis. France was faced with a problem that will be familiar to modern listeners. A major bank was nearing insolvency. Allowing it to fail would send shockwaves through the economy, deepening the crisis and possibly leading to an unstoppable cascade of bank failures, which could send the country spiraling into a full-blown economic depression. The only alternative was what we would call a bailout making a huge payment of public money to save the bankers from their own incompetence, a move which would stretch the budget even further and surely prove unpopular. Perhaps worst of all, there were no guarantees a bailout would work. One possible outcome was that the government would simply lose the money and the bank would fail anyway. As I've mentioned in past episodes, Napoleon had a reflexive distrust of finance. He considered bankers and stockbrokers not much better than con artists. Cambacérès and other advisors warned the emperor that the danger of a bank failure was too great, and a bailout had to be arranged quickly. But Bonaparte resisted. Quote, 
You propose to make me hand over $26 million to a man I do not owe it to. I will lose the $26 million, and the man will not be saved. End quote. As you can see, Napoleon was thinking of this as an individual problem with one bank, not of the structural risk to the entire financial system. Economics was not his strong suit. The head of the central bank, François Barbet-Marbois, begged Napoleon to reconsider, but Napoleon was quite firm with him. Quote, If you have provided me with good accounts over the last four years, it is because you have followed what I have told you. My finances are now in a critical state because, over four months, you have departed from this. You are a very good man, but you are surrounded by cheats. I will be back in my capital soon, and I will arrange my affairs. Until then, do not exceed the authority of your ministry. You do not have the right to hand out so much as a cent without the authorization of the Minister of Finance. End quote. However, faced with the threat of imminent financial collapse, Barbet-Marbois got Joseph's blessing to defy Napoleon's orders and dispersed the bailout. The bank was saved, and possibly the French economy with it. Still, Napoleon was furious. Barbet-Marbois was fired, and the entire central bank was restructured to make it less independent. Bonaparte wanted to find some bankers to prosecute, but Cambacérès was able to talk him out of it. This might have been the prudent course of action, but on the other hand, back in his days as a lawyer, Cambacérès had been employed by many of these same bankers, and he still had lots of friendships and connections in the world of finance. So, he also had an incentive to cover for his cronies and preserve his influence. The experiment with Joseph acting as a regent was clearly a failure. Napoleon would look for some other position for his older brother. The French economy survived to fight another day, but it had been a close call. The simple fact was, the country could barely afford war on this scale. The French government and military had outgrown the country's antiquated financial system. The bailout was nothing more than a temporary measure, a tourniquet to stop the bleeding. What really saved the French economy was the influx of money from Napoleon's new conquests. We saw this dynamic under the French Republican governments as well, that old Latin slogan from Cato the Elder, Bellum se ipsum alet, meaning war feeds itself, became an unofficial motto of the revolutionary armies. Napoleon's government had made great strides in getting the country's finances under control, but the fact remained that France's massive war machine required more resources than the government could reliably provide. And so that dynamic would continue. War had to feed itself. The revolutionary armies of the 1790s were not terribly sophisticated in this regard. They looted and stripped the land bare and, after they had fed and equipped themselves, sent whatever was left over back to Paris. By this point in our story, their methods had become much more refined. French satellite states made payments to the French treasury, or dispersed money directly to the French garrisons stationed in their countries. There were also more subtle methods of economic domination. 
including the selective use of tariffs and trade regulations to build up French industry at the expense of the rest of Europe. This influx of cash allowed Napoleon to maintain and even expand his massive armies, while also pursuing an aggressive shipbuilding program to replace the losses from Trafalgar, and all without reducing the domestic spending back in France that kept his government popular and effective. Of course, nothing in life is free. This torrent of foreign cash had serious negative consequences as well. For one thing, the non-French elites and the educated bourgeoisie now living under French occupation were well aware that their countries were being treated like cash cows. It should be said that this was not entirely a one-way street. French domination often brought progress and protection as well as exploitation. And there were people in all corners of Napoleon's empire who felt their countries were getting a good deal. But the profiteering in conquered territories limited the appeal of French rule in every place they conquered. Another problem was corruption. With so much cash flowing to Paris from the far corners of Europe, and from foreign treasuries directly to the headquarters of French military units, unscrupulous French bureaucrats and army officers found almost endless opportunities for graft and fraud. Corruption was much more common in this era than it is today. By modern standards, every institution of this period, in every country, was absolutely riddled with graft. But no other country had this massive tidal wave of cash moving through its bureaucracy and military. Corrupt officers and officials in Russia, Britain, Austria, Prussia, or any other country you care to name could only dream of having such perfect conditions to steal so much money. Napoleon himself deplored personal corruption and cracked down on it where he could, but the problem was so endemic that he often had little choice but to turn a blind eye. Even many of his best generals were wetting their beaks. Marshal André Massena was particularly notorious, but he was far from the only one. A true crackdown on corruption would devastate the ranks of the officer corps and the civil service. Bonaparte could not afford to punish and alienate his best men. However, all this corruption did not go unnoticed. Many in the occupied territories were already unhappy seeing so much of their country's wealth sucked away by the French. Corruption added insult to injury. And so, as Napoleon's empire grew, it was trapped in a vicious cycle. The money to maintain the empire could not be collected without alienating its subjects and corrupting its institutions. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. 
Before we get too far into these matters of politics and finance, I should remind you that there was still a war going on. With Austria knocked out, the fighting had mostly died down. But the rest of the Third Coalition was still at war with France, including two of the great powers, Russia and Great Britain. In early 1806, there was only one place in Europe where there was still large-scale warfare between French and coalition troops, southern Italy. Napoleon had not been expecting southern Italy to become a front in the struggle. Before the war, he had cut a deal with King Ferdinand of Naples, who ruled over most of southern Italy. You might remember King Ferdinand from our episodes on Nelson. He and his wife had been close friends of the British ambassador, Sir William Hamilton, and his wife, Lady Emma Hamilton. Ferdinand was well known as an arch-conservative and opponent of the revolution, but he and Napoleon had come to an arrangement. The Neapolitans got control over a few French-held port towns, and in return, Ferdinand agreed to stay out of any future coalitions against France. Napoleon had no real ambitions to control southern Italy. This was a poor region of limited strategic importance. Past French governments had tried to bring it under French influence, and all had failed miserably. It didn't seem worth the effort to try again. However, Almost as soon as the ink was dry on his treaty with Napoleon, King Ferdinand began plotting with the British and the Russians, who were busy organizing the Third Coalition and wanted to use Naples as an avenue of attack against Napoleon. When the war broke out, both Russia and Britain landed small armies on Neapolitan territory. King Ferdinand tried to pretend this was all done without his knowledge or consent but it was obviously impossible for two foreign powers to land thousands of troops along his coast and keep them supplied without some kind of collaboration from the Neapolitans. Few things enraged Napoleon more than a broken promise. He saw this not only as a strategic and diplomatic problem, but a dishonorable act, and a personal insult. He vowed to make King Ferdinand pay. Unfortunately for the Neapolitans, their king had enraged Napoleon and put their country in France's crosshairs for basically nothing. The Russian and British armies in southern Italy began pulling out shortly after Austerlitz, having achieved nothing of substance. When the French came to punish King Ferdinand for his betrayal, the Neapolitans would have to face them almost alone with only a handful of foreign regulars to bolster the small, antiquated Neapolitan army. The French headed south in January of 1806 with over 40,000 men, led by Marshal André Massena. A small force of remaining British troops managed to defeat the French at the Battle of Maida on July 4, 1806, but this victory had little impact on the wider campaign. The Neapolitan army began to fall apart almost immediately. They had no chance of stopping this onslaught. Once again, King Ferdinand was forced to flee to Sicily, where he would be safe behind the protective curtain of the British Navy. We've seen a lot of incompetent rulers over the course of this show, but King Ferdinand's decision to double-cross Napoleon has to rank among the biggest blunders in 92 episodes. It would have been impossible to predict at the time, but this betrayal would have grave consequences for the whole continent. 
As I mentioned earlier, southern Italy was of little use to France. Napoleon had not intended on making this one of his conquests. Under normal circumstances, he probably would have extracted some humiliating concessions from King Ferdinand, maybe demanded the Neapolitans host an occupying French army, and then turned his attention elsewhere. But these were not normal circumstances. Napoleon was making decisions based on his anger at the Neapolitan king, not strategic considerations. He wanted to take Ferdinand's kingdom away from him forever, and that meant adding southern Italy to the growing Napoleonic Empire. Past French attempts to bring this region under their influence had failed spectacularly. For a whole variety of social, economic, and historical reasons, this was not fertile ground for a French-style centralized state and with the British and the exiled former royal family just across the water in Sicily, ready to provide arms, money, and inspiration to anti-French rebels, southern Italy had played host to a brutal insurgency and civil war during the last occupation. Conditions had not changed. There was every reason to expect the same thing would happen this time. But Napoleon's anger would not allow him to entertain any other course of action. And he had just the man for such an impossible and thankless task. His brother, Joseph Bonaparte, would become King of Naples. It's a bit strange to think of a coronation as a punishment, but this was a way to sideline Joseph after he had proven so ineffective running the government in Napoleon's absence. Joseph was no man of action, but his mere presence on the Neapolitan throne would burnish the prestige of the new Bonaparte dynasty. And Joseph did have extensive experience of Italian politics from his diplomatic career. He had even gone to law school in Italy. So he wasn't a totally implausible candidate for the job, despite his recent failures. To help his brother in this new endeavor, Napoleon assigned him an experienced political advisor. This was someone we have met before on the show, but we haven't had cause to discuss him since all the way back in episode 28. Antoine Christophe Salicetti, the Corsican lawyer and politician who had been the Bonaparte brothers' first political patron back in the very early days of the revolution. The tides of politics had moved past Salicetti long ago, but he was still kicking around, still associated with the Bonapartes, and still had a wealth of experience as a backroom political operator to draw from. He was only in his late 40s, but already widely seen as a has-been. However, he surprised everyone by being quite effective in this second act. He would serve as both Minister of War and Minister of Police under the new regime, and was considered by many to be the most capable and competent member of Joseph's government. Still, Joseph and Salicetti would be facing an uphill battle. Napoleon advised his brother to keep artillery permanently stationed on the hills outside his new capital, a precaution against the almost inevitable uprising against his rule. Joseph was not the only member of the Bonaparte family to receive a crown. On June 5, 1806, younger brother Louis Bonaparte became monarch of the new Kingdom of Holland which would replace the Batavian Republic, which in turn had replaced the old United Provinces of the Netherlands. As I've mentioned in past episodes, there was an incongruity in the relationship between France and her Dutch satellite state. 
The French desperately needed Dutch money, both directly in the form of payments from the Dutch treasury and indirectly in the form of access to the considerable Dutch financial system. However, Paris had no direct control over the Netherlands. They always had to work through the local government, and that local government had often proved fractious and incompetent. The ruling faction, known as the Patriots, had a relatively large constituency among the general population. You might remember from our very early episodes that there had very nearly been a Patriot-led revolution in the Netherlands before the French Revolution. However, after being installed by the conquering Republican forces in the 1790s, the successive Patriot governments had never been able to transcend that narrow constituency and become fully accepted as the legitimate government of the whole country. Napoleon's patience with the Batavian government had finally run out. He hoped that with Louis in charge, the instability and lack of legitimacy that had plagued the old Republican government would become a thing of the past and he would finally have a reliable partner in the Low Countries. Louis was being installed to increase his family's prestige, and to act as a safe, pliant figurehead for a French puppet government. But that's not the way he saw things. He announced that he now considered himself Dutch, began learning the language, and even started calling himself Lodewijk, the Dutch version of Louis. King Lodewijk would do his best to become a good ruler to his adopted people, and it almost immediately began to annoy his older brother. Napoleon's sisters, Elisa and Pauline, wouldn't come away empty-handed either. Napoleon carved out small territories in Italy for each of them, the Principality of Lucca and Piombino for Elisa, and the Duchy of Guastalla for Pauline. And it wasn't just Napoleon's blood relatives getting these new positions of power. His 23-year-old stepson, Eugène de Beauharnais, was named Viceroy of Italy, Napoleon's official representative to his northern Italian holdings. In practice, this would make Eugène chief executive of all northern Italy. And, as we've already discussed, Napoleon's friend and brother-in-law, Marshal Joachim Murat, would take control over the duchies of Berg and Cleves in western Germany. Napoleon has been criticized for indulging in nepotism, putting crowns on the heads of so many members of his own family. It certainly was nepotism, there's no denying that. But France was now a monarchy. The fortunes of the Bonaparte family were now explicitly tied to the fortunes of the state. Monarchy runs on nepotism. And we just saw how during Napoleon's absence from Paris in 1805, unscrupulous politicians had seized the opportunity to increase their own power. It was impossible for Napoleon to be everywhere at once in his growing empire. He needed people in positions of authority whose fortunes were totally tied up with his own. The only way to ensure that they wouldn't double-cross him and tear this empire apart. In the uncertain, cutthroat world of early 19th century politics, Napoleon felt he could only rely on the bonds of family. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. After the Battle of Austerlitz, the late British Prime Minister William Pitt had told his aides that they could throw away the map of Europe. As Napoleon continued to remake European geopolitics, that statement looked more and more prescient with each passing week. The whole continent looked on in shock, but there was little anyone could do. Napoleon held all the cards. The old diplomatic status quo was in collapse. These were dangerous times. However, in spite of all the ominous developments on the world stage, an unlikely opportunity for peace had emerged. In the wake of Prime Minister William Pitt's death, there had been a dramatic reshuffling of British politics, as the political elite struggled to fill the great man's shoes. By now, the country was no longer governed solely by Pitt's faction of moderate Tories, but by what we today would call a government of national unity, which included members of every tendency within British Parliament, both Whigs and Tories, from every clique and almost every ideology. This government was given a grand title, the Ministry of All the Talents. The new Foreign Secretary would be Charles James Fox, the longtime leader of the Radical Whigs. Fox was a staunch liberal, and although he had soured on the French Revolution long ago and distrusted Napoleon, he had always been critical of the war and had consistently favored a diplomatic settlement with France. Fox was an honest man. He pursued the government's pro-war policies faithfully. However, he also opened up back channels with Foreign Minister Talleyrand. Fox hoped that he and Talleyrand could work out some kind of preliminary peace deal in secret, which he could then use to convince the rest of the cabinet to change policy and seriously pursue another peace negotiation with Napoleon. As you might recall from past episodes, Napoleon had been hoping for exactly this sequence of events ever since the war with Britain recommenced in 1803. A big reason he had moved his army to Boulogne was to provoke peace overtures from the British government. It had taken nearly three years, but now there finally was a change in the British government, and there was a golden opportunity to stop the war, perhaps even a chance to pull European geopolitics out of its downward spiral and bring back some modicum of stability. Unfortunately, Napoleon's anger and pride stood in the way. As Fox and Talleyrand carried out their secret correspondence, southern Italy immediately became a point of contention. The King of Naples was a close ally of the British, and the British foreign policy establishment considered that region to be a vital national interest. Fox knew his colleagues would never accept a deal that left Naples under French domination. Meanwhile, Talleyrand knew his emperor was resolved to punish the King of Naples. The two sides had barely begun talking, and already they were at an impasse. This seems to have soured Fox on the whole enterprise. He lamented, quote, It is not the matter of Sicily, but the shuffling, insincere way in which they act that shows me they are playing a false game. End quote. In fact, Fox was wrong. The French desperately wanted peace with Britain. 
Napoleon's obsession with southern Italy was mostly personal. Perhaps with time, Fox and Talleyrand would have found a way around this dilemma and charted a path to peace. But we'll never know. Charles James Fox died on September 13, 1806, aged 57. The hope for peace died with him. His replacement, Charles Gray, the Viscount Howick, was much more pro-war. A bit of trivia, Gray is better known by the title he assumed a year later, the Earl Gray. He would later serve as Prime Minister, and he is the same Earl Gray who the tea is named after. No one knew it yet, but it would be years until another opportunity for peace presented itself. More than six months after the earthquake of Austerlitz, Europe was still shaking. These aftershocks were felt the most acutely in Berlin. You might recall that the Prussians had sat out this war, but just barely. They had mobilized their armies to join the coalition, and even delivered an ultimatum to Napoleon. But his victory at Austerlitz had forestalled hostilities. In the wake of the great battle, the Prussians had been forced to eat crow and sign a deal with Napoleon, the Treaty of Schönbrunn. This involved them trading away a few of their minor holdings in western Germany for the province of Hanover, which was now occupied by the French after being seized from its former ruler, the British king George III. Prussia was still neutral, but this deal tilted their foreign policy away from the coalition and towards Napoleon. As you might remember from past episodes, the Prussian court was deeply divided over the country's diplomatic orientation. The pro-French faction believed Prussia should offer Napoleon support and friendship, or even join forces with him. After all, Prussia's greatest enemy had always been Austria. And, after the partitions of Poland, Prussia found herself engaged in rivalry with Russia as well. Prussia had always been the weakest of the great powers. The pro-French faction believed that if Napoleon was allowed to realize his geopolitical aims, Prussia would improve her standing and see her enemies defeated. The anti-French faction saw Napoleon as a threat. They believed his ambition to redraw the map of Europe would inevitably bring him into conflict with Prussia. They worried that unless King Frederick William joined together with other anti-French monarchs, Prussia would be forced to confront France alone. And if that happened, they would have no choice but to try to resist the Grande Armée with inferior numbers, or bend to Napoleon's will. But by early 1806, it looked like that debate was finally over. Prussia had sided with Bonaparte. The choice had not been made freely, but for better or worse, the die was cast. In the summer of 1806, one of King Frederick William's senior advisors, Count Christian von Haugwitz, wrote, quote, France is all-powerful, and Napoleon is the man of the century. What do we have to fear if we unite with him? End quote. It seemed the pro-French faction had finally won. However, under the surface, there was a powerful and growing backlash to this new policy. Many in the Prussian court were deeply alarmed by the ambitious foreign policy moves Napoleon had undertaken after Austerlitz. They looked on with dread as French influence creeped closer to Prussia's borders. 
it's still too early to talk about any kind of German nationalism, but many in Prussia did feel a kind of proto-nationalism, a general feeling of solidarity and sympathy with other German-speaking countries. And there was a growing feeling that under Napoleon's new empire, their fellow Germans were being oppressed. Think back to episode 90, when we discussed the execution of the South German bookseller Johann Philipp Palm. This act inflamed educated opinion all over Europe, but especially in the German-speaking states, including Prussia. Remember, Palm's crime had been publishing an appeal to all Germans to resist the French. By executing him, the French authorities had ensured that message was heard all over Europe. Most average people were not listening, but Palm's example made quite an impression on the literate classes, particularly the bourgeoisie, the class Palm himself came from. Pressure was building on King Frederick William to reverse course and try to check France's growing power. One of Prussia's leading politicians and statesmen, Baron Heinrich von Stein, decided to stand up and make himself the face of this backlash. This was a risky move. Under an absolute monarchy, criticism of the monarch was rare, and could lead to dire consequences. But Stein threw caution to the wind and used forceful, blunt language. He did stop short of attacking the king directly, but his criticisms of the king's advisors and cabinet were downright nasty. He accused them of, quote, arrogance, dogmatism, ignorance, physical and moral enfeeblement, shallowness, brutal sensuality, treacherous betrayal, shameless lying, narrow-mindedness, and mischievous gossiping, end quote. Baron Stein closed his letter with a warning, quote, If His Majesty does not agree to the suggested change, if he persists in ruling under the influence of a cabinet deficient in its organization and condemned in its personnel, it is to be expected that the state will either be dissolved or lose its independence, and the love and respect of its subjects will fail completely. Nothing will be left for the upright official but to abandon it, covered with unmerited shame, without being able to help or take part against the wickedness that will ensue. End quote. Stein's letter was an absolute bombshell. The mere fact that this respected statesman had felt the need to write with such force and venom showed how tense the situation had become. But there was one problem. Even for a man of Baron Stein's high position, it would be a massive breach of etiquette to deliver the letter to the king himself. He needed to find someone closer to Frederick William to deliver it for him. However, the letter was so aggressive and incendiary that everyone he approached to deliver it refused. Even Queen Louise, who agreed with the letter's contents and was well known for her outspoken nature, refused to bring it to her husband. So, officially speaking, the letter was never delivered to the king. However, Stein's bombshell did circulate unofficially among senior courtiers and members of the government. We don't know if it ever actually reached its intended audience through some unofficial channel, but it certainly helped crystallize opinion among the Prussian ruling class. Opposition to the new pro-French direction in Prussian foreign policy was becoming impossible for King Frederick William to ignore. 
And it wasn't just the Prussian elite. There was a growing anti-French mood among the aristocracy, the military, and much of the bourgeoisie as well. This atmosphere was further inflamed in August of 1806, when rumors began to circulate that in his secret negotiations with the British, Napoleon had offered to return the province of Hanover to George III, thus betraying his deal with the Prussians. I have not been able to confirm how much truth there was to this rumor, but it was certainly plausible, and it was certainly believed by many Prussians. In response, King Frederick William ordered his generals to begin mobilizing the Prussian army. On September 2, 1806, an open letter from members of the Prussian court was delivered to King Frederick William. It was much less combative than Stein's letter, but more radical in its recommendations. The anonymous authors asked the king to declare war on France. It was signed by many prominent members of the ruling elite, politicians, noblemen, generals, and even members of the royal family. Almost everyone in the king's circle now stood opposed to his policy of friendship with Napoleon. He had to change course. On September 26th, Frederick William sent Napoleon a highly confrontational letter, in which he accused France of violating its agreement with Prussia, and demanded the return of former Prussian territories which had been ceded to France or her allies under that agreement. The letter closed, quote, May heaven grant that we can reach an understanding on a basis that leaves you in possession of your full renown, but also leaves room for the honor of other peoples, that will put an end to this fever of fear and expectation, in which no one can count on the future. End quote. It seems Frederick William was hoping that Napoleon would accede to his demands, and that he could get away with taking a more hostile approach to France without having to actually fight the French army. But Napoleon was not having it. On October 12th, he responded with a letter of his own, absolutely dripping with menace and acid sarcasm. Quote, I am extraordinarily sorry that you have been made to sign such a pamphlet. I write only to assure you that I will never attribute the insults contained within it to yourself personally, because they are contrary to your character and merely dishonor us both. I despise and pity the authors of such a work. End quote. Napoleon was signaling that he was prepared to drop the matter and blame the insulting letter on the king's anti-French advisers, but only if Frederick William backed down. He closed his letter with a threat. Quote, Believe me, I have such powerful forces that all of yours will not suffice to deny me victory for long. But why shed so much blood? For what purpose? I speak to your majesty just as I spoke to Emperor Alexander shortly before the Battle of Austerlitz. Sire, your majesty will be vanquished. You will throw away the peace of your old age and the life of your subjects without being able to produce the slightest excuse in mitigation. Today, you stand with your reputation untarnished and can negotiate with me in a manner worthy of your rank. But before a month has passed, your situation will be different. End quote. The emperor of the French was not playing games. If Prussia didn't get in line, he was prepared to invade. 
This was a tremendously dangerous situation for Prussia. Conditions were much less favorable for a war with France than they had been a year earlier. In 1805, Prussia would have been fighting alongside the Russians and Austrians, and there was also an Anglo-Swedish army in northern Germany that could have provided assistance. Now, the Austrians were out of the fight. What remained of the Russian armies had been evacuated from Central Europe, and that Anglo-Swedish army had returned home as well. The Prussian military was well regarded, but they would be outnumbered by the French by more than two to one, and most of their troops were totally inexperienced. Only one small ally stood by Prussia's side, the Kingdom of Saxony. For years, Prussian policymakers had worked to avoid the prospect of facing the French army alone. Now they were on the brink of doing exactly that. You would think this would be a time of great anxiety, even fear, but the Prussian elite seemed unconcerned. The acrimony between competing court factions was finally dissipating as the ruling elite united behind the idea of war. The uncertainty and shame brought on by years of contentious neutrality were finally ending. War fever had gripped the country. In Berlin, the officers of the most elite and aristocratic unit in the Prussian army, the Garde du Corps Regiment, the personal bodyguards of the king, decided to make a gesture. They went to the French embassy, drew their swords, and began sharpening them on the stone steps leading up to the front door, occasionally pausing to make menacing glances up at the French embassy staff, watching from the windows above. The message was clear. Prussia's army wanted to fight and believed it could win. Even after the staggering French victories of the post-revolutionary era, many in Europe still considered the Prussian army the best in Europe. This was certainly the attitude among most of the Prussian officer corps. A generation earlier, the Prussian army had been in the same position as the French army in 1806. They were the great innovators of tactics, strategy, and organization. Their achievements on the battlefield stunned the world, transformed European geopolitics, and led foreign militaries to copy their methods. In the middle and late 18th century, the military of Frederick the Great was the template for every modern army in the world. Of course, we've seen in great detail how the new type of army unleashed by the French Revolution had shattered that old, Frederican status quo. With the benefit of hindsight, it seems obvious that the new style of warfare pioneered by the revolutionary French armies represented the future. Every military that had tried to fight the French with those old, Frederican methods had been humiliated. Forward-thinking military leaders like Archduke Charles of Austria were already hard at work on ways to adapt French methods to an old regime army. However, in 1806, this reality was not obvious to everyone. Remember, we're just now passing the 10-year anniversary of the Great Battles of the First Italian Campaign. The French model of military organization was still new, and there were still people all over Europe who saw all the French military success of the past decade as an aberration, the product of luck, or the result of the failures of their enemies. By this point in our story, many Austrian, Russian, and British officers had faced the French on the battlefield, and knew from first-hand experience that the success of the revolutionary armies was no fluke. They represented something new and very dangerous. 
However, with their country pursuing a policy of neutrality, the Prussian officer corps had not been through the same learning experience. There were Prussian officers who favored reform, but by and large, as an institution, the Prussian army trusted in the old, tried-and-true methods handed down by the great King Frederick. They were confident that nobody in Europe knew war better than the Prussians. They didn't need any newfangled French ideas. They already had the greatest military the world had ever seen. After all, it wasn't quite so long ago that the small Prussian military had held half the continent at bay during the Seven Years' War. Except, that was a long time ago. 1806 would see the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Seven Years' War. The only men left in the Prussian army who had served through those terrible, glorious years were a handful of the most elderly generals, who had fought as teenage officer cadets. By 1806, the youngest recruits in the Prussian army hadn't even been born yet when Frederick the Great died. Was this really still the army of King Frederick, almost 50 years after all his most famous victories, when the man himself was nothing more than a distant, fading memory to most of the troops? The Prussians certainly believed so. With their country's small population, their military had always tried to favor quality over quantity. The Prussians often bragged that one of their soldiers was worth several of the enemy. As they prepared for war with France, they had to hope that was true, because Prussia could only mobilize about 160,000 men. They could count on around 25,000 more from their ally, the King of Saxony, but his troops were of questionable quality. The Russians had promised an entire army corps, but it would not be ready for quite some time. Meanwhile, Napoleon now had around 200,000 of his best troops massing in central Germany. Most of these men had trained at Boulogne, and almost all of them had the experience of at least one major campaign under their belts. It had been decades since the Prussians fought in a major war against another great power this inexperienced military would be taking on the army which had just stunned the world with inferior numbers. You would think the Prussians were wary, maybe even fatalistic, but the mood in the country was happy. Finally, the greatest military on earth was going to put this upstart Bonaparte in his place and restore order to the continent. Almost exactly a year after the outbreak of the War of the Third Coalition, Europe was on the brink of war once again. Before we go, I'd like to give a shout-out to two books that were a great help in writing this episode. First, The Iron Kingdom, by Christopher Clark. This is a general history of Prussia, covering the years between the beginning of the 17th century and the state's official dissolution in 1947. I'm no specialist in German history, but I have found the chapters on the Napoleonic era useful, and I enjoyed reading it. The second book is Napoleon, The Spirit of the Age, by Michael Brewers. This recommendation is probably overdue. Brewers has been one of my standbys for quite some time now, but it was particularly helpful in writing the first half of this episode. I think we'll leave things there for now. Until next time, thanks for listening. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? 
Have you marvelled at the golden face of Tutankhamun, or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.